The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. We have two Korean War veterans in studio today. And Jim, will you go ahead and kick us off? Thanks, Jason. Yes, in studio today, we got two Korean War veterans One is Terry Bryant, and the other is Harry Hope. And I want to welcome you guys to the broadcast. And first, I'd like to take a turn and ask you you guys, you know, you served in the military, you served during the Korean War. Give us a little bit of background about yourselves. Well, I was was not a very good young man. So I went to high school at Southwest, which is in the city of St. Louis, and I got myself in trouble. So I decided I was going to leave, and I took um, a birth certificate and kind of phonied it up and ran away from home. So I left in January 1950, end of January 1953, uh, and I wanted the Air Force, and they sent me to Fort Leonard Wood, and the next day I went through some stuff down there. And then the next thing I knew, I, my scores were high enough, and I thought, oh, good, I was finally going to get to the Air Force. Well, got down to Lackland Air Force Base, and they called my name out, and they sent me after two weeks, three weeks. I went to uh, Air Base Defense School in Oakland, California, where they gave us an M1 Grand and ban- the whole routine like I was in the Army. And I said, wait a minute, I want to go to talk to somebody. I sure in the hell don't want this. And, uh, well, that wasn't the way it was going to be. So I went through that training, and then they shipped me to Honolulu, Hawaii. And next thing I knew, I thought it was in the Navy. A few weeks later, they they put me on a troop ship, which was lovely. Uh, I, w- I told my wife I'd never go on a, tr- on a cruise after that damn thing. And we got the Inchon uh, the last week of March. 1953, and uh, I wound up 
at a base of a hill. I can't even know the number anymore. And I got my jaw broke, and they sent me um, up to uh, Japan for wired my mouth shut. And some people think I should still have my wired mouth shut. So, <laughs> uh, and then five weeks later, I went to Kempel airstrip which at the time was uh Kempo now it's called Gimpo which is K14 and there was a sergeant named Abarta who was a marine who j- joined the air force cuz he didn't want to fight anymore is what the story goes but he obviously had Terry Bryant well anyway George Ney was from Pottsville Pennsylvania and he wanted two guys one to drive the jeep the other to be a machine gunner and uh, I said I knew how to drive a Jeep, which was a lie. I didn't know how to drive a Jeep. George said he knew how to fire a machine gun, which is a lie, because he never knew how to fire one either. So a border real quick found out that we neither one of us knew what the hell we were doing. So he took us to the end of the runway where he taught us <laughs> politely how to drive a Jeep. So for the rest of my time, I drove a Jeep with a thirty caliber cool machine gun around the out perimeter of the air base and did some other things and chased airplanes when they F-86s, which was a fighter force uh, there. And we were called, we could sit at security control and listen to the dogfights going on at times, which wasn't a lot because we broke their back when, you know, we weren't there that long before the war was over. And uh, February of 54, uh, they found out through my mother that uh, I made a phone call in December that I, I was alone. Well, whatever you do when you're a stupid kid. They uh, found out where my mom, I called my aunt. My aunt must have told mother what she did do where I was. And the next thing I knew, February of 54, I had two military policemen standing at my bar- my bunk and said, you're going home. And uh, so I got a whatever kind of discharge that was and sent me home February of 54 and I stayed home Uh, and mother made me go back to Southwest high school. Uh And I had to go back to whatever and get that straightened out. And then I told mom, this isn't working. So going back to school. So September, I turned 17 in 1954 and mother signed papers and I joined um, Colonel Jack Ann Curtis and Sergeant Abarta back at Lackland Air Force Base. And, again, I went back to Oakland uh, for Air Base Defense and got promotion and uh, other things. And then I wound up being with the 44th and 68th Bomb Wing Group, which is a B-47 base in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And we were... The Cold War was going on, and we were flying sort uh, over to England and all over the place with the uh, E-47s, KC-97s, all the old prop jobs, and except we had fighter aircraft, etc. And our job was to protect the pilots, and I walked town patrol uh, all over hell's half acre I guess is what you call it wherever the bases were that I was assigned to and that's about all I really did except I stayed too long and that's it Harry would you tell us a little bit about your background well uh, I quit school when I was 14 
and started working. This was back in 1946. Um, and I went into the Marine recruiter in 47 and told him I'd like to join the Marine Corps. And he asked how old I was. I said 16. He told me to come back when I was 17. Well, two weeks later, a friend of mine, Joe Kish, and I went into the Navy recruiter and they asked how old we were and we said 17. They gave us some paperwork and told us to fill it out. And about uh, three weeks later, we were in Chicago at Great Lakes in the Navy boot camp. And... Uh, I was sent home on vacation, on leave for 10 days, and I was getting ready to go to Norfolk, Virginia, to Little Creek, uh, to board a, a uh, APA, and something happened, and the APA was still out in, in the ocean. They said to stay at home until they come after me. Well, in the meantime... Uh, Another friend of mine, which was 18, we went back into the Marine Corps recruiter, and uh, he joined the Marine Corps, and I asked, I said, Lieutenant, if I could transfer from the Navy to the Marines. And he showed, I showed him my ID card, and he said, well, we'll uh, just stay at home, we'll, we'll come after you. And about a month later, they did come, and they had my discharge from the Navy and my paperwork for the Marine Corps. So I joined the Marine Corps, went back to Paris Island for boot camp, went to Camp uh, um, North Carolina, um, Camp Lejeune, and I was there for a couple years, and we went to... The Mediterranean area um, on a APA um, Fremont, and we toured the countries surrounding the Mediterranean. We started up in uh, um, East France and uh, all the nice places there: Nice and Gulf Juan, France, and uh, England. Turkey, Greece. Um, we were laid on the beach in 1950 in France, and they called all the Marines back on board ship. Um, we went through the Suez Canal over to Kobe, Japan. Then we found out that we were at war with North Korea, and. Uh, we joined the, the 3rd Battalion, 7th Regiment, made the Inchon Landing, uh, fought our way up to uh, Kempo Airport, uh, and waited there until the Army could come over and provide security for them. Then we crossed the Han River and fought at Seoul. We fought our way up to the 38th Parallel, they called us back to Wonsan, uh, to uh, Inchon. We boarded a LST. We went around the south, uh, the uh, southern coast of 
South Korea, over to the east side of North Korea. We made an amphibious landing at Kobe, Japan, at Wonsan, Japan, uh, Wonsan, Korea, and uh, fought our way up to Hungnam, and that was at the bottom of one of the tallest uh, mountains in North Korea. And uh, we started fighting our way up this seven, eight miles to a reservoir called the Chosen, C-H-O-S-I-N, Reservoir. And our objective was go to, uh, to Udemni, which was the, 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 at the top of that mountain, 78 miles from the start. Uh, we went about 30 miles, and we were hit by a uh, small arm fire and found out that we were um, fighting Chinese at that time. Uh, all of the wounded and the dead that we picked up uh, were Chinese. Um MacArthur didn't believe they were Chinese. They were just a couple Chinese laundrymen that wanted to fight the Americans. But we got up to a town called uh, Hagaru, and the road split at that point, and the Marines went around to the west side of it, and we had 4,000 Army troops from the Seventh Regiment, the Seventh Division, Army Division, the Thirty-First, Thirty-Second Regimental, and they went up the east side of uh, the reservoir, and we've more or less uh, hit a few of the small little villages. And the Chinese were there, and they gave a little fight. But as soon as we started shooting, they would turn around and run. Uh, most of the the Chinese that were entered the war at that time, they went to the east side of the reservoir, and uh, the army... Uh, lost about two-thirds of their men through POWM, dead or wounded. Uh, we didn't get hit until a couple of days after that. We were on top of uh, the mountain at uh, Udemni, and uh, the uh, Chinese started coming at us every morning before daybreak. Because they know if they stayed past uh, the time and it got light, we'd have air support. So they would come up, blowing their horns and everything. And all you had to do is put aim down down the hill and pull your trigger, and you would kill one or two uh, Chinese. Uh, we found out there was 120,000 Chinese surrounding. Uh, the cho- cho- the uh, chosen reservoir area, 
And it took us in the neighborhood of three days to uh, get rid of all of our supplies. We used it was um, 40 below during the day, uh, not during the night, and 30, 35 below during the day. And uh, we couldn't build a fire because we were getting incoming mortars from the other hill from the Chinese. So uh, we were eating the old-fashioned World War II sea rations, and we had to chip the food out of the can and let it dissolve in your mouth. And by then you couldn't eat and you couldn't taste anything. Your mouth would swell up and everything. But um, our uh, ammunition was getting real low, and our our code word for ammunition uh, was Tutsuro. And our commanding officer called down to the Army Supply, which was down at Wonsan, to ask for Tutsuro's. We knew the Army, uh, the Chinese was, intercepting all of our messages. And uh, uh, after a while, here comes uh, one of the old C-119s, and they start dropping these canisters. They're about two feet in diameter and about six feet high. And we started pulling them up the hill through the three foot of snow that was on the ground. We opened up the canisters, and they were full of Tessero candy bars. (laughs) But nobody complained because after not eating for three or four days, uh, those Tessero, boy, they looked good. (laughs) We were stuffing them down our pants, legs, and our blouses, and anywhere we could get a Tessero, well, not every place. Uh, there's a couple of places I wouldn't put it to zero, but um, we uh, ate Tootsie for 10 days. We finally got our ammunition. They called back down and said, we need the Tootsie with a big bang. And there was a Marine officer happened to be in the radio uh, uh, area there and heard our commander officer saying that, you, that we needed the different types of tits rolls. And we we got the ammunition. And we, two days later, we fought our way back down the mountain to Hagaroo. And uh, that was 12 miles. It took us 60 hours to, to fight down that 12 miles section. And we got the Hagaroo, we found out the army was almost completely wiped out. Um, we had 12,000 Marines up that walked up there. And by the time uh, we got everything burned up, we burned all our supplies and everything in, in, in uh 
Hey, Guru, we uh, we're, have to go down to Cordery, which was the last stop down the mountain. And that's where our division headquarters was located. And uh, we've uh, lost quite a few good men between Agaroo and Cordery. I, I lost a, a couple real close to me. But we we got down to Cordery, and the 3rd Battalion, 7th, we put in the lead. And we got about seven miles outside of Cordery. And they, the Chinese uh, broke, bombed a, a little bridge on the top. And we had to call the Army engineers to come in and lay some uh, threadway bridge parts so we could go on the rest of the way down. But we had uh, a thousand killed in in our unit in the first Marine Division. We had a thousand killed, six thousand wounded. Uh, everybody had frostbite due to the fact that it was so cold. We really were not uh, supplied with cold weather maneuvers. And coming from from France in the Mediterranean, where it was 70, 75, 80 degrees, and a month later it was down to 40 below. Uh, I'm still suffering with, from my knees down with the results of the, the uh, cold air, cold weather. But I did get home, got back to Camp Pendleton. He wanted to cut my feet off because they were black. And finally, they started getting color in, into it. So we got sent back to home, back to Camp Pendleton. And uh, that was in September of 1951. I re enlisted in the Marine Corps in 52. February 52, and they sent me back to Japan. And I was a military policeman in Camp uh, uh, Sakai in the um, upper part of Japan. I was a death sergeant for the 1st Marine Division. We had 75 Marines and 5,000 sailors. Yeah, we were attached to the, the the security area. But after 10 years in the Marine, my legs started getting so bad that the Marine Corps wouldn't let me re-enlist. They discharged me. I came home. I was a firefighter for a while over in the east side. And um, I was talking to a fellow, and they said, won't you join the Air Force? They said, we don't march. We don't do all that kind of stuff. Of course, that was back in the 50s where the Air Force was the Air Force, you know. So I went over to Scott and joined the Air Force Reserve. I spent 10 years in the Air Force Reserve. Then came over to 
the National Guard here in Missouri, and I joined the National Guard, and I retired uh, when I was 60 years old. I had 37 years duty between the act, the reserves and the active duty. And I, right now, I, I'm still working for them. I, uh, I started the local chapter of the Honor Flight. Um, I uh, uh, started that one in 2010, or 210, and uh, uh, I'm the uh, chairman of now. I, um, I don't do the work that I used to do, so that's it. Well, I'm 90 years old. I'll be 91 in July. You know, Harry, Terry, there's there's a, a couple questions. I, I, I think the Korean War, you know, it is called the Forgotten War, but people don't remember much about it. And a lot of the people that served during the Korean War, this is hardened soldiers, believed it was the most brutal of all battles, wars that they were ever in. You were fighting Mother Nature. You were fighting overwhelming number of Chinese that entered unexpectedly. It was hilly. It was rugged terrain. You were ill-equipped. I mean, the list goes on. But does does it kind of you know burn you a little bit when people don't remember the Korean War a little bit? Uh, let me ask. Yeah, you can go. Um, I uh, had to go to JV for a couple of years every Wednesday. And I had a guy tell me, the only way you're going to halfway forget the Korean War and what happened is talk about it. That year, 2009, 2009, I spoke to 57 different groups here in the St. Louis area. And most of those were American Legions and VFWs. World War II veterans did not consider the Korean War a war. That, that's what really burned me up. But I did collect like $20, $29,000, and I built a memorial in Forest Park near the jukebox. Um... And I kept talking, and I wasn't talking to get money. I was talking for my benefit. I still today talk to groups, and most of the groups I speak to now are PTSD groups. But I go in there, the first question I ask is, um, how many people remember the Korean War? And you might get a dozen hand. And they would say, well, wasn't the Korean War part of World War II? No? That, that really burns me. Uh, when we had 37,000 people killed in three years, 
in the Korean War. Um, the battle that I was at, the Battle of the Chosen, that was more the most fierce, fierce battle that the Marine almost ever had. They say, you know, they're talking about the islands, of, uh, how bad it was over there. If you go by day by day by day over a three-week period or a month period or a two-month period, they don't even come close to the the fighting and the, the dying and the wounded that the Koreans had and the Korean veterans had. Uh, and th- there's no way to change it, you know, because they're they're not teaching anything in in school anymore, high school. I was at a a Marine. Um, I was not a Marine. It was a it was a, a military luncheon, and we had a retired. Army general speaking, and he was speaking about oh World War Two and this and that, and then went right over to Vietnam. Didn't even mention Korea, and it really. And when he got finished, I went up to him. I says, General, I said, do you know there was a a war in Korea? And he looked at me. He said, "Well, yes, you know, you know." I said, "You know, you didn't mention you went from World War II right over to Vietnam." And he looked. He said, "I didn't talk to, to, to about Korea." I said, "No, you didn't." And I said, "You know, there's a lot of Korean veterans that went through hell here." I said, "Nearly all the veterans I knew from Korea." In the in the nineteen fifty fifty one campaign, they've got problems and wounds. And he turned around, went back up on the podium, and he called him back, and he says, "I that I want to criticize. I want to to say something." He said, "I." He didn't say anything about the Korean War, and I he said, and I don't know why my notes I have my notes here. He said I just went very past it. He said I wonder, I want the people here that was in Korea stand up, and I guess there were maybe two two dozen, three dozen of us stood up, and we got a standing invasion. But even even today, people. The kids don't know Korea. Nothing about Korea. Because the education system don't teach teach it to them. Harry, he did a good job. I, I just sit here every time I listen to Harry Hope, and I think, holy cow, I'm sure in the hell glad I didn't have to go through that. And I admire the guys. and the uh, Harry and uh, the other guys, uh, when they elected me commander of Chapter 1, and Don Gutman and the guys, I said, gee, you know, I'm so proud. I'm the young one, and I'm so proud to be able to be their commander and the state commander of the Korean War veterans. And 
I'll do anything I can to promote these fellas because they went through hell just to protect the people of South Korea. The people of South Korea have never really forgotten the fellas that died over there. They still are very good friends of ours. Uh, we have an organization that uh, Mr. Pack and his lovely lady, who will be here, I believe, July the 31st, uh, to honor the Korean War veterans here at this museum. And I just spoke to the national president of our association as well as some fellows from Florida on the phone the other day. And this means a lot to not only the guys that are up there that aren't that didn't fight during 50 to 53 to, and recognized to 55 by the United States government, but these fellows are defense fellows that are now invited to join our organization which will hopefully keep the organization alive for as long as possible to keep the name of the Korean War veterans in front of the public, which is very hard to do because even this last holiday where Gary Sinise's group, if you watched it, they did not even mention Korea then. And I have written a letter to that organization that promoted that. I haven't heard back from them. But they haven't paid the respect that the Korean War veteran in the beginning of that war deserves. Because these guys fought day and night in hell of a conditions that I didn't have to. You know, I didn't have to do that in 53. Uh, the Air Force was, yeah, the Air Force was in infancy, as Harry alluded to. We were still the Air Force. We were still the Army Air Corps. We still used the Army equipment, the Jeeps and everything from the Army. When I re-enlisted in 54, we were just beginning, Harry, getting some of the equipment that was actually the Air Force. The B-47, the F-86 was the first, and the B-47, which I was a member of the organization who has been dissolved because we're too damn old to keep it going. But uh, the B-47s are history now. And those guys flew sorry all the time to Russia during a nuclear bomb, and the bears would come back to us. But we still respect the Korean War vets. We should. We should continually promote this because Harry and the guys, they told me today or yesterday on the phone that we're dying off at 600 a day. So, I, I mean, enough of me. I just try to keep going, you know, that's all. People don't know that the first Afro-American pilot got shot down in Korea, dead, and he was in an F-86, I think, right. or F-86. He was. But did you know that? No, I did not. Yeah. What kind of plane was he flying? F uh, an F-86. F-86, okay. The Korean War was the first time the armed forces were integrated. Yeah, that's right. right. Yes. Yeah. There's a... There's a lot of first, you know. Mass units. Um, but uh, it, it, I, I've got over it. I got muddled a little bit because uh, I, um, I had a phone call right before 
from Mrs. Kim asking my wife and I to come to lunch on Sunday. Do you realize South Korea is the only country that we have ever fought with, protected, that actually thinks us? You know? The rest of them, they, they, they don't need they think their own people are... Well, Harry, remember when the pandemic, this uh, COVID thing came? Who was the first persons that gave us masks? Who came to our... Actually gave us masks. I gave, I handed out... They gave us enough masks to supply every one of our men. 100 masks. Oh, the Korean people give us all the time things to protect our families. They, they did that twice. Yeah, they did it twice. And I also like to point out that my grandsons are are they have applied for the Korean scholarships. The Korean scholarships. Uh, the Korean people have, with the Korean Veterans Association, provide scholarships for our grandkids and our great grandkids. So, how many countries have really done that? That we even went far and protected? I don't see England doing that. I don't see any other country doing that for their their warriors, as they call us. They hug us. They send things to us. And they'll be here, by the way, July 31st. And I'm so doggone proud that Mrs., Mr. and Mrs. Peck yeah. are going to be here. And that's the president and his lovely lady is going to be here from our, our group. And, yeah, I'm very proud of the fact that these men have given we, me the privilege to do this. I look forward to, to meeting them. They're going to be here at the museum for the event? Yes, sir. Awesome. I'm yes, looking sir. forward to that. We, uh, we've we been invited to all their Christmas parties, all their picnics. Um, if they have some kind of special event, uh, either, uh, what's your name? Uh, I forget. Terry. <laughs> I forgot what my name is. <laughs> Terry uh, or I. We're all right. We'll, we'll I forgot what the hell call. I was at times. <laughs> or what 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 the hell hill was that that you were on? <laughs> well, Harry, I got a question for you. Do you still eat Tootsie Rolls? Oh my god! <laughs> Do we ever eat? Yes, sir. To answer your question, <laughs> you got stock in Tootsie Roll. Well, I got no. thirty three pounds of Tootsie Rolls in my my uh, basement. <laughs> <laughs> we, we take it when we're we're going to do the honor flight um, uh, collection. Uh, Harry, where in the heck are we doing that? Mel Myers running that, and we're going to be at Deerberg Supermarket. Where, where is that down in South St. Louis? Isn't it down on no. Tesson Ferry Road? Tesson Ferry. Deerberg's was kind enough, and we hand everybody a Tootsie Roll to remind remind them of what that is actually. The Tootsie Roll size is about the size of a cartridge of an M1 Grand. There, and I, I, um, I get a 33-pound box of, uh, of Tootsie Rolls um, right before Memorial Day and right before Veterans Day. Uh, the collection that we made, we we. Uh, gave out 600 little Tootsie Rolls. Well, I know that uh, now that I know this, uh, the first thing I'm going to do tomorrow is uh, 
buy some Tootsie Rolls and keep them on my desk at the bank. So what that, bank uh, are you? Uh, well, I'll just say I'll just say the bank just for right now since it's on air. Um, but uh, the uh, anybody that grabs one of those, I'm going to say, you know why I got that Tootsie Roll, and I'm going to remind them of why because That's not good. very many people know about this. I didn't even know about it, and I. Well, I'm this, a history buff. And Tootsie people, Roll was kept us alive for, for almost eight days. Yeah, they did. We ate nothing but Tootsie Rolls. Yeah, they did keep the Marines alive. And, and uh, the way, yeah, we really appreciate the Tootsie Roll company. And the big, big thing I want to point out is, and I know that this is going out to different people, that we will be collecting for the honor flight every dime that they see a Korean guy with his cap that says he was on the honor flight. Every dime that we collect goes directly to the honor flight of St. Louis to send more of our guys that haven't seen the memorial. And the memorial, my understanding, Harry, that the memorial that's being remodeled now is pretty much done, and they're going to be we're going to be able to go back to see it now. Right now, it's, yeah. it's under construction. So, yeah, is that the one in D.C. we're talking yes, about? Sir. Okay, yeah, we got a beautiful memorial, by the way, in Forest Park next to the Jewel Box that actually has the Chosan Reservoir and also for all the boys that fought and died from the St. Louis metropolitan area. Is that not correct? Yeah, that's correct. And it sits next to the jewel box, and uh, we think it's beautiful. It is absolutely the city of St. Louis. Parks Department, I'd like to compliment for that too because they help us now because we're too old to climb the ladders, believe me. To put the flags up. How many guys from St. Louis were there on that uh, on that memorial? Oh, Harry, I can't remember. There's, um, oh my gosh, I didn't come prepared. For I, I I think there's 297 names on the spears on either side. Wow, right? I believe that's correct, Harry, but I'm not now, sure. I didn't look that up. On on the chosen memorial, the stone. I, I we had 103 people total membership with the chosen few here in St. Louis, and all of their names are on there. But he wasn't killed; those are ones that have survived. And we have, and the names on the Corinth are the ones that were dead that were killed. Yeah. At the sundial, if you go look at the sundial, all those names of all those. Man, and I think there's a, a women too. I think there's a, but anyway, those men, those people passed away in Korea. Wow. We uh, we also have seven names on our wall here of honor. St. Charles, yes. So St. Charles County that. that were killed in action there, and I know at least two of them were actually taken prisoner and executed, oh, or died in the prisoner of war camp. But uh, the one thing I want to assure you guys is uh, as long as this museum is here, we will have a Korean War Veterans Day here on or about the 27th of July because we don't think it's a forgotten war. It was actually the beginning of the Cold War. Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, you might say we're even entering another Cold War now. We are. But the 31st day of July this year, 2022, we will be here at St. Charles and I'm now a resident in St. Peter's. At my, so I'm here with my, jail. Wife, my bride in jail. It's a, it's a miracle. <laughs> it's, good thing I joined the Air Force or, or the Army or what the heck I was. I'd probably be. 
enough of my our levity here. Uh, we are so thankful for you guys and uh, and everything that you sacrificed for this country. There's not many men built like that today, like you guys were back then, and uh, and became men very quickly at a young age, and went through a hell of a lot of stuff that uh, most men couldn't handle today. And we are so grateful that, uh, uh, and I'm grateful that we uh, that we have people like you and uh, in this country, and uh, that you're still here with us, man. Thank you very much. Um, I wish everybody felt that way, but um, unfortunately. I don't, it doesn't surprise me that we do because um, the caliber of of the young adults that we have in the United States now, I'm just happy that I'm not living in today's day because uh, I'm a little bit too patriotic I, I belong to all of the uh, organizations, the, the Marine Corps League, uh, the VFW, 3944, the uh, American Legion, 156. And, um, but just um, all, all the um, veteran... Chapters, I belong. Well, Jim, Terry, Harry, do you guys have anything else before we sign off today? Anything else you want to leave the listeners with? No. uh, You haven't got enough time to listen. Well, I would say uh, the public is certainly welcome to come honor Korean War veterans uh, on uh, July 31st here at the museum, 410 East Elm Street. It's at 1 o'clock. And... uh, and I uh, just want to say that you guys are never forgotten here, and yeah. God bless you for what you uh, did and served. Thank you. Well, we're going to go ahead and sign off of the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesry at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. 
Join us next time on the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum as we host Angela Peacock. Angela joined the Army immediately after high school in 1998. Angie was tough. She was strong, tough, and a born leader. In her words, the G.I. Jane came out. I watched her the night before I left for the Army and dreamed of being just like Demi Moore, just as tough as the guys. I was ready, willing, and able to do anything a man could do. After deployment to Korea, Angie was deployed to Iraq in May 2003. She began driving supply convoys in an area known as the Triangle of Death. Angie said it was very, very dangerous. People got killed there all the time. Women in combat? No front lines for women? My ass. Baghdad was the front lines. During her Army career from 1998 to 2004, Angela was sexually assaulted and harassed while serving her country. Angela came home and described herself as tired, very broken, isolated, and damaged goods. Today, Angie has a master's degree in social work and is involved with community outreach efforts to improve medication and health literacy among military veterans and their family members. This is Angie's Journey.